0: All right, welcome back to the Crypto 101 Podcast, where we've got a special episode lined up for you today. Uh, if you love the Crypto 101 Podcast, you're going to love this. Um, so coming up in March, Pizza Mind and I are hosting our latest three-day event, the Digital Currency Summit featuring dozens and dozens of the world's top crypto minds. So you guys know that how like on the Crypto 101 Podcast, we bring on two elite crypto experts every week. To discuss the future of the industry. Now, imagine getting to hear from 40 other similar level experts over the course of three days. Now, that is exactly what we're putting on for you. And you guys could learn more or you could even sign up to attend by visiting digitalcurrenciesummit.com. And to get you pumped for the event, we want to use this podcast episode as a little preview, a little hint of what's to come. So our last Digital Currency Summit was a smash hit. was a ton of fun. Uh, It took place in November, uh, and we had a ton of awesome conversations, including two in particular that I wanted to highlight for you guys um, today and that you're about to hear right now. So uh, first up, I spoke with Brian Gallagher of Partisia Blockchain about really how he's thinking about uh, the future of cryptocurrencies and uh, securing them as well. So here it is, our November Digital Currency Summit interview with Brian Gallagher of uh, Partisia Blockchain. All right, everybody, welcome back. Welcome back to another uh, action-packed interview here at the Digital Currency Summit. I'm your host, Bryce, uh, and I'm joined today by Partisia Blockchain. As you guys can see, Brian Gallagher over there, co-founder. How you doing, Brian? Excellent, thank you. How about you, Bryce? I'm doing very well. Hard to be upset as we were, uh, you know, catching up here before the before the recording. We were both, you know, talking about the spoils of the bull market um, and, and how things have been so crazy. Um, but you're the founder of Partesia Blockchain. Tell me a little bit about um, kind of yourself, how you made your way into the industry, what yep. Partisia is.
1: Yeah, so Partisia Blockchain has a few co-founders. I'm one of them. The other is Kurt Nielsen. He's a PhD economist um, in Copenhagen. And then Peter Franzen, who's our CTO. Uh, He's as well in Denmark. So uh, Partisia, the company, has been around since 2008 delivering MPC, which is called multi-party computation, cryptography for enterprise. So on commercial terms, dealing with corporations such as Bosch, Tora, SBI, Japan. And what multi-party computation is, is it's a special type of cryptography that allows you to compute on encrypted numbers, encrypted data across multiple parties. So in the blockchain industry, you've heard the term maybe zero-knowledge proof is a pretty common term. A zero-knowledge proof is a two-party computation. So essentially what MPC does is it takes an existing technology like zero knowledge proof, but it expands upon that so that you can do multi-party computation. And we can sort of dive into the different use cases and why it's relevant. and so important that we're merging MPC with blockchain.
0: Yeah, this is is fascinating stuff because I think most of the viewers who are at home, this introduction already was just like, whoa, what? I thought we were going to be learning about dog coins Uh, I thought this was crypto. Uh, You're telling me cryptocurrencies have something to do with cryptography? Um, Like literally, I think that's what some people are thinking. And so, Partisia Blockchain is actually, you know, a very technologically focused company. You guys are working on the infrastructure surrounding blockchain, right? So, you know, there's there's a popular company called Fireblocks, for instance, and they use MPC. To, uh, to do multi-signature transactions for, for different funds, you know, Anchorage is another, and, and there's all sorts of stuff. So, mm-hmm. so Partisia is working. Um, are you working more with um, you said enterprises to secure their infrastructure? Are you working on like um, you know multi-sig wallets and stuff for 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 institutions?
1: Yeah, so we have a sort of spin-off company called Sepier, and that Sepier's focus is. Exclusively uh, the use case that you just uh, mentioned, which is sort of threshold key signature management. Wow. Um, and so Sepier is uh, partly owned by SBI Japan, one of Japan's largest holding corporations. And uh, you know they use Sepier technology in VC Trade, which is sort of their big exchange that launches in Japan. And uh, yeah, that's uh, an exclusive area of focus. But Partisia in general is actually. You know we use multi-party computation and apply it to all sorts of use cases such as like Bosch for example uses it to uh, sort of get data from their internet of things initiatives so uh, you know all the the new smart devices like washing machines or household uh, thermometer controls you know those are creating data so those data feeds need to come in somewhere but multi-party computation is a privacy technology. So you're able to sort of protect the user's, you know, individual uh, sort of sensitive personal info from being completely attached to maybe their energy usage info. Um, So that's like one use case that's different from threshold, you know, key signature management. So by far the threshold key signature is the most talked about use case, but there's so much more to it.
0: Yeah, and just what you said there just actually sparked a memory in mind. I know your guys' website uh, is all about privacy. Uh, you know, reading the site actually says privacy preserving technology across all platforms. And so exactly what you said there was like all this data that is uh, being emitted by you, for instance, even online or on Facebook or what, you know, meta now or whatever. Uh, all of this mm-hmm. is in kind yeah. of tracked back to you personally, identifiably. Um, And now you're seeing in like the iOS store, you have to approve if the apps track you from from spot to spot. So the trend is actually moving to user-owned data, right? And and like even as Facebook, and do you agree or do you disagree, I guess?
1: That's exactly right. That's the philosophy we share. It's the trend we see happening. And to build off the point you just made, I guess an easy way to sort of describe what is going to happen Currently, you're sort of agreeing to maybe an Apple applications terms now, which is nice to see that you're giving that consent, you know, on a case by case basis. And people still the trend. don't even
0: know what they're agreeing to.
1: <laughs> no, they, they don't. But at least it's step in the right direction. It used to just be, say, I agree to the terms the first time you sign up to any website, and then it's just free for all. But to take it to the next level, Bryce, that's really fascinating, at least in my opinion. Is that what we've built in a use case for uh, social media uh, networks is the ability, now that our devices are much more capable, even in the third world, you have Androids now that could still store, you know, half a gigabyte of data or something on your phone. You All of this data that's typically housed in the Facebook server, you can actually just host on your local device in an encrypted file without even noticing it. So some technology that we've built, when you sign up for a website and you create these data points, like say you pretend you upload your ID for something uh, that they know your age, gender, country of origin, rather than saving it in a central database that's hackable, it actually can save as a locally encrypted file that takes up almost no storage. And then MPC works with smart contracts to then pull the network of users and find matches on an encrypted data. So your device actually is the new host. So typically Facebook has all the data in their servers. The way the future looks is that we have our own data on our own devices. But because MPC can protect the contents of the data, they don't need to decrypt in transit. They don't need to decrypt in rest. They can stay encrypted. So even if someone hacked your phone, they wouldn't be able to pull that file. But the MPC is able to pull and see your device and read, I guess you could say, some encrypted data and find matches. And then matches can be uh, executed on the blockchain. And now you have a live
0: connection between an end user and a service. And and the only reason why I guess that this actually does kind of make sense for me is because I've been around this space for a long time. And I kind of think it's like, oh, it kind of sounds similar to like Bitcoin, right? As a distributed ledger where it's holding, uh, you know, encrypted, you know, basically accounts, uh, across the world. And you could, every, anybody could kind of see and check to see like, okay, cool. Like, you know, this guy, you know, even though you can't tell necessarily what person it is, uh, you could all, you could, you could prove basically that there's, um, you know, certain amounts of coins there. Um, and, and so I think also right, there, yeah. there's interesting things because in Bitcoin, it, it also stores beyond just like, uh, you know, money, right? Account balances there. You could have OP codes, right? And, and those op mm-hmm. codes could store data that you know anybody around the world who holds a Bitcoin node um, you know could actually hold you know, at, you know is operating the decentralized database, I guess but it's not super it's not really a super scalable means or, or technology to be hosting like you know that as like a, for, for a backend for a web browsers right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. So uh, very well said. I think actually, if I had to, you know, we know this as a team, uh, we're a very technical team. So sometimes bridging the sort of explanation to a, an audience who may not be as into cryptography as us is a bit difficult. So I think the way you just described it, when this uh, video is over, I take it back to the team. We can, you can yeah. use that a little bit because it made perfect sense.
0: Cool. All right. Well, well, yeah, we're always trying to connect the dots. You know, crypto, we got the Crypto 101 podcast, so always trying to connect the dots. But, but while we have you here, I mean, you know, you're the expert in cryptography, you're the expert in, in computer science. So let's continue to get your thoughts uh, around where the future of Web3 is going. I know we've talked about some, you know, decentralized use cases. What, what are some other technical or maybe structural developments? I know you mentioned zero knowledge proofs, stuff that gets you excited, stuff that really motivates you. Um, and especially the team at Partisia, what do you guys, what you guys are building?
1: Yeah. So I think uh, one key point that you mentioned earlier in the call is, you know, uh, cryptography, you know, cryptocurrency, cryptography. So uh, we are a crypt, a team of cryptographers. Um, and we design everything we do in order to sort of use cryptography to advance in the industry and, Um, unlock new use cases and so with Partisia blockchain we call ourselves a layer one plus two solution so on the layer one we've architected and designed a a pure blockchain that solves for a lot of the existing issues uh, such as scalability Um, so we have sharding built into the protocol level so you can essentially add another shard and add another thousand transactions per second Uh, It does increase the sort of storage requirements on the node operators. So you don't want to add more shards when they're not needed. So we're starting with three shards. We're going to run 3000 transactions a second for the use cases necessary. That's more than enough. I mean, Visa card is somewhere in that range. I don't think we're going to be needing more than more transactions a second than Visa in the early days of our network. But then what we do is we also use MPC to bring privacy to certain use cases that unlocks enterprise ability or consumer ability to conduct new use cases that blockchain typically wouldn't allow. Mm. So to that point, you know, we do see a few trends and privacy is one of them. Um, There is a huge need for privacy to use blockchains because, for example, one of our early contributors uh, and partners is a huge holdings corporation. And one of their holdings is a ports company. Uh, They operate some of the largest ports around the world. And they have this issue where they want to use blockchains to track all their partner supply chain data so that everyone can see it in real time and have these permanent records on a blockchain that's public enough where you don't have to worry about downtime or private implementation going down or You know, failing to be online 24-7, which you get when you use Amazon Web Service or anything else. But if you use Ethereum, for example, it never goes down. Bitcoin, it never goes down. So they're looking for a public and distributed enough blockchain. But the problem is, if they ran this use case, all of their partners can see the data, but then a competitor could as well. Mm. So that that. that blocks them from being able to use public blockchain. With Partisia blockchain, we're able to create extra layers of technology where they can run these transactions on the public blockchain, but create settings where an additional layer or key would be required that could be shared amongst just the partners they want to be able to track certain things happening, but they could obfuscate or mask that from the rest of the network. So that would be one example where an enterprise who's running a worldwide supply chain wants to leverage a public blockchain but they can't because there's not enough privacy for the vendors to be okay. So that's the next big trend, because that is one of, you know, infinite use cases that is in the same situation where they want to leverage the ability of to have a really secure open network that never goes offline, but they do need some privacy. So, you know, now you can talk about, uh, um, you know, we fraud detection from banks, you know, banks can't just share all, all their transaction data with each other because there's private account information that they can't expose. But there's ways to now use MPC to sort of comb through a big pool of transactions without exposing the contents of what's within each transaction. But you can flag what would maybe be considered a a transaction that needs to be checked. And so then that could at least create a system where banks could then start a process to double check and share more information based on artificial intelligence crawling private data that's running across sort of a public ledger. Um, So privacy is the next big trend. And then we also have a term that we've coined called jurisdiction management. Mm. So we've designed our blockchain to allow smart contracts to deploy, uh, but restrict uh, which nodes can actually host transactions based on certain jurisdictions. So when you are a big company or, you know, even just a regular user that wants to deploy a use case on Ethereum, if you have a transaction that gets batched into a block that was mined in China, for example, and maybe a dark web transaction went into the same block, uh, that's a problem <laughs> because uh, now your transaction is associated in a block of transactions with uh, maybe an illicit transaction that you know uh, did something illegal so from a compliance standpoint that's an issue so in the future when as more regulation creeps in on this industry where everything is publicly visible there's also going to be sort of this jurisdictional uh requirement where you know you probably aren't going to be able to run your application on these pure public blockchains because as an application you're known and you have end user agreements
0: Yeah. And you're going to need get, to be definitely sh- get interesting there um, for sure.
1: Yeah. And then GDPR in the European Union, for example, you know, there's different privacy laws that apply in Europe. So if you're a European company running a blockchain application, unless it's completely decentralized and an right. open source GitHub and no one knows the founder, that's not going to be the case for all these applications. A lot of them are going to have forward facing founders who are driving the business forward. So they're going to need to have some type of management around jurisdiction. So we've built that into the protocols as well to give developers and organizations more flexibility and control over where transactions are batched.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I'm really hearing from you, um, and tell me if I'm I'm hearing it right, is that like blockchain is really unlocking a lot of efficiencies across a lot of different sectors. Like one of the things that is crazy, like for instance, I was just on a cruise recently. We left out of uh, the the port of San Pedro. It's like one of the biggest like, Long Beach, right? Like one of the biggest ports yeah. in the world. And I was there for like several hours, and I saw zero movement. Like I saw no. Boats move these big old shipyards things, and I'm like, "What's going on?" I'm like reading up on how basically uh, the the ports are at a standstill, and how they're they're yeah. all lined up. There's not enough dock workers. Um, I have no idea, like, if blockchain could kind of come into you know this sort of environment um, and and help like move things forward. I think it's maybe more of like uh like an, like a human capital problem right now, but uh, yeah. I think in the long term, and then also like. Um, like it, it feels like you know it is like kind of a deflationary pressure just like artificial intelligence like how over the long term like adopting these things now right the the ai that we use to like sort through uh you know your 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 instagram feed right 10 years ago it cost like you know a billion dollars to build it and now you could you know run it and host it like really quickly um and, and commoditize it so once like you know blockchain really does become commoditized it could it could really help a lot of industries in the way that like AI as, and it can help the the economy overall, I think. But um, do you have any thoughts? it's,
1: it's, It's just the importance and ramifications of the technology just goes beyond like everyone's wildest dreams. And DeFi is, in my opinion, the first proof of concept there that really shows how disruptive and how fast it can happen. And the problem with ports, like, you know, in California, it's a human problem. That's a political problem. You know, ports are running well in most of the rest of the world, even though the media may not tell you. I've shipped things recently from the U.S. to Europe in the Middle East in containers myself, and things ran relatively efficiently in certain areas that Are just being governed better. (laughs) So when you get when you get rid of the human problem and you replace it with just pure intelligence and and algorithms, Mm -hmm. things become insanely more efficient. And you know, there's just worker issues and and human capital problems too. So that problem is a bit more complex. But DeFi is a perfect example of. I mean, to be honest, the cool it's one of the coolest things for me because I've been in the industry since 2015 uh, in wow. terms of at least being a Bitcoin buyer. Um, and the reason that I entered in 2015, I was very familiar with it from the early days because I was playing online poker in 2009 and payment processes would go down and Bitcoin had just launched. and It was a very, you know, revolution crowd, you know, and the Fed type crowd. Uh, so you started reading about it in the forums, but then when the... Uh, New York Stock Exchange invested $100 million into Coinbase. I think it was 2015. I was in Y Combinator at the time for my first company, undergroundseller.com, which is a wine e-commerce marketplace in the US. And that's how I was like, okay, like this is my validation. Now the New York Stock Exchange is involved. Like this thing has institutional backing. It's going to really be a serious, serious thing. So now here we are, fast forward to today. And for the first time, I am conducting most of my business, you know, not necessarily like Partija is a big company and we do all sorts of, you know, regular uh, style business, but using like stable coins, for example, or just paying people in ETH, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe even using Coinbase Custody, like there's so many new products, and it is such a better user experience than using the bank.
0: Oh yeah. Go to a wire or go to a bank to try and send a wire and, you know, it'll take you an hour or whatever. And just, you stand in line, there's nasty people all around you. It's, you know, it's not the way of the yeah, future. And I mean, in
1: some, and sometimes it takes two or three days to get a bank to approve a wire to an organization you've been dealing with for two years. It's not mm-hmm. like a new wire they need to research. So it's, the, they're just the entire infrastructure around the global banking system is completely collapsing the fiat scam is out out of the bag the cat's out of the bag you know oh, yeah like inflation said, is first, here they're they're it's admitting here. it's not transitory no it's it's here and it's game on i mean now like in 2009 when i first started reading forums and saw bitcoin and you know two plus org was the big poker forum and Everyone started watching and sharing videos about the Federal Reserve and how there's nothing federal about it. It's a private (laughs) bank. They print and creature from Jekyll Island. Yeah. And and back then, you know, I was in university. And so you're kind of that age where you're like,
0: This is it, like
1: inflation's coming tomorrow. Like they're just printing us away. (laughs) Things take longer than everyone else expect. In technology, Mm -hmm. when you build a product, things always take a bit longer. You know, development takes longer. So even though we're starting to see the beginning of hyperinflation, who knows? I mean, to me, it should have been, this should have happened many years ago. So maybe this is the moment where it's really breaking down. But when you look at DeFi and the ability to just put your stable coins into you know, audited protocols and receive amazing yields, or just go through someone like Gemini, who's regulated with insurance and still get 8% on your Gemini USD dollar, it's over. I mean, why would you ever store a ton of money in a bank in, in most of the world? America's still fortunate. We don't have negative interest rates. If you're storing euros in a bank in Denmark, you're paying the bank to hold your money.
0: Yeah. You're losing a percent
1: a year. So that's here we are. You know, this is it.
0: Yeah. And and we could we could really go on. I, I know we we've got a hard stop here. I've I've got a couple other questions. Um, but but generally I've got speaking, extra time,
1: so no problem.
0: Okay, awesome, awesome. Yeah. I, I would love to know like um I guess like um, one significant milestone that that Partisia blockchain is really proud of that you guys have hit, um, and then one other milestone that's maybe right up around the corner. Um, yeah, so we just deployed also, our. I'd also rust. like yeah. to um, frame this in. Um, I know you guys have a big network launch coming up too. Yes.
1: Yeah, so we, we have probably over 100, 150 whitelisted node operators already powering our test net so that the Genesis block can deploy mid late December. But the big uh, deployment we just made a week or two ago was that we um, have our new smart contract language, which is Rust WebAssembly. And it's great because it's scalable. So, I mean, you know, most of the things in Java, you can still write in Java on our blockchain, but when you talk about really computationally intensive transactions using like a MPC oracles and you know, running a zero knowledge computation on a massive healthcare data exchange, for example, yeah. which is something that we're gonna you know announce later, we have a huge Wiki. initiative in Africa uh, where 55 countries are opting into a big uh, healthcare data exchange. Uh, so the fantastic. details on that will, will come out in the future. But um, the point is with Rust and WebAssembly at the smart contract level, the, that will be able to handle uh, some of these major, you know, zero knowledge computations that use cases will require in the future. So mm-hmm. we're way ahead of schedule. We actually, you know, didn't plan on pushing that until later next year, uh, but we reprioritized some things and got it done. So that was deployed, but then the next big milestone will be after the new year you know early in the next year when we actually start releasing a lot of the zero knowledge computation capabilities that the developers can you know grab it out of the box mm. i think just to give a short really description of why blockchain and mpc this is super important Typically, when Partija would sell MPC technology to an enterprise, you basically have, let's call it three entities who want to share data with each other, but can't reveal the sensitive contents from within. So you establish a private MPC network. You spend several months with three different firms, plus Partija negotiating term, commercial terms, and legal agreements. Then it gets done. And then you have to start building everything after everyone agrees and pays and then things move forward. And then, you know, several months, a year later, you have a network running and then they start, but it's only a three person networks. So it's not really too very distributed. The network can break down and things can fall apart. Um, but, you know, they don't if you have good you know, organizations running these these products. But the point I'm making is there's a high barrier to entry to leverage this type of technology on an individual by individual use case basis. So for the first time ever, what we're doing is we're bringing these open source libraries that we're gonna open to the public from our foundation. And we're gonna let any developers strap into a really distributed, really robust, strong, decentralized network of node operators, then give the developers these libraries to deploy their own privacy preserving use cases. So you have this first ever opportunity where developers can come and leverage this technology out of the box where to date, typically you had to be an enterprise that would get engaged Partisia or a similar company on commercial terms. And there are not very many companies. You know, Fireblocks and a few of the others, they stole the show in key management. But when it comes to very, uh, you know, um, generic uh, zero knowledge computation is how Kurt refers to it. Uh, There's just only a few handful of organizations in the world that have it. So now we're bringing it to the public
0: interesting there's a couple things I was, I was just taking some notes on there that are interesting that you mentioned I wanted to kind of touch on so you mentioned that uh, partisia's uh, base layer is like coded in rust and I know Solana is also coded in rust and so will there be any opportunities for applications to be ported over um, for instance sometimes you know ethereum uh, competitors are, are evm compatible and it's you know bullish for them because you could have an ethereum coin that's just You fork the code, it's the same exact code, and you could have an application working fine on on your new blockchain. Um, Anything like that that's gonna be having some crossover between other coins?
1: Yeah, so good observation. And basically without it being anything official, I think there's a growing consensus in the community that sort of Rust WebAssembly is the direction many people are heading in. Even Facebook and their blockchain teams are working on Rust WebAssembly. Ethereum, I believe, is heading that direction as well. Mm. So uh, I think it's, there's a general consensus that building that it is sort of the way to go. So big projects are aligning in that direction, not necessarily on purpose. I think it's just the technology speaks for itself. And so that creates a much more robust interoperability opportunity. Which we intend to leverage, and you know, we call ourselves a layer one plus two, so we are an interoperability play.
0: I love that. Um, And then, uh, Brian, my my final question is a bit of a doozy, but it's um, it's just your thoughts around incentives. And so, you're bootstrapping a network from the ground up lots of different competitors. We saw DeFi Summer you know, last year basically give birth to liquidity mining, which is like an incentive for users to come and you know, really stick around this, uh, this DeFi network and there's yield farming. And so I'm, I'm curious about how Partisia will uh, attract users and then also not fall prone to you know vampire attacks or basically where people uh, you know, stay on your network for a little while there's incentives. And then if the incentives dry up, okay, boom, they go somewhere yeah. else
1: right yeah that's that's a, that's a hard thing to balance and my co-founder Kurtz, you know he's a phd economist and his specialty is in game theory so he's the one designing all the incentive layers and schemes he's the guy for node operators as well as you know application developers and just baseline users so there's a lot of thought and time that goes into this um, you know it's liquidity mining is a big one um, i think the thing that we've done well at least on the node operation side, is that everyone who's bought into the project is pretty much on four-year unlock schedules. Fantastic. So everyone's locked into the long run regardless. You know, So the incentives are aligned for everyone to do the best job for the network because they aren't just able to get in and out quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think that's your step one in terms of launching a new network is you need to make sure that all the initial stakeholders are basically trapped for the long run. Otherwise, you don't really want them in because- they're going to hit and run if they see a good opportunity. Right. So step one is getting, you know, long-term initial stakeholders, which we've executed very well on uh, step two. And also, you know, to that point, you know, making them stake and hold the tokens to run the nodes. Most projects have to pay off incentivize test nets. We have one of the best test nets running and it's because people have bought in and are holding their own stakes. Mm-hmm. So we're not even incentivizing to run a test net. Um, But then you have to figure out like, you know, we're an interoperability network. We function as a second layer. So ideally you want to get assets from base layers that are pricey and expensive, like Ether Bitcoin to come up to the second layer. So what kind of rewards can you offer the users to park it there so that it sits in the second layer? Because for example, if you get a billion dollars of Bitcoin and ETH to go park in the second layer and then mint, let's call it, you know, some type of reward token Mm -hmm. for holding it there then it unlocks liquid use cases because you can start having you know liquid second layer swaps for example um so that's a program that's being developed to make sure that we get enough liquidity in the second layer so that the use cases that want to deploy there make sense and have a Mm backbone so we see that as sort of the next step um and then back to the node operators you know in the beginning you may not have enough transaction throughput to really uh, you know, get them paid, because we do not do an inflationary uh, schedule similar to like EOS, where every block is just tokens minting to the operators. Mm-hmm. What we do is actually a different model. It's called bring your own coin. So when an Ethereum developer maybe uses the second layer to run privacy on their application, all the transactions are still happening in ETH, and the Partija blockchain node operators are getting second layer ETH as their payment rather than MPC tokens. So there's no downward pressure on the token economy for the node operators earning NPC because they're actually earning other coins such as ETH or Bitcoin.
0: Wow, you know, again, and one other thought I was going to let you go, but I'm going to keep you. Um, you know, as as incentivizing you know liquidity basically on these layer twos, um, you know, that would be big business traditionally for like a you know a bank, but banks are like a little bit slower to move. Do you actually see enterprises? leveraging their balance sheet for providing liquidity on these L2s and almost, you know, becoming a, you know, having an arm of, you know, asset management in a sense, low risk.
1: Yeah. So there's a few players in the industry that do do that.
0: Wow. Um, and
1: some of them maybe more publicly than others, but you know, the, there are market makers in the industry who act as LPs for all sorts of different networks some are just mega crypto whales who do it on their own account. But, you know, you've got jump trading based out of Chicago, 600 employees or something like that. And, you know, they're equity markets traders, they're crypto traders. Right. You but but do you com- think a
0: character like Bosch or like yeah. uh, one of your other, like, you know, enterprise partners would do, would, would, you know, work in something like that?
1: Yeah. So publicly traded companies are going to be the last ones to come because mm-hmm. they have different types of decision-making processes and, shareholder accountability and custody requirements. Mm. So the private companies move the fastest, like uh, Cumberland Mining, for example. Um, You know, they're a subsidiary of DRW, which is a huge privately owned sort of equity trading shop based out of Chicago. So because they're a private company, they can sort of choose to do what they want. So that's why they were first. And that's why they're the best in the industry now, because, you know, they didn't have the same custody requirements that maybe a publicly traded company Um, But as you see, like people like Tesla, I think Tesla bought the first Bitcoin. So that means that a company like that has added it to the balance sheet. And I think that was a proof of concept. So, you know, you have Michael Saylor and his firm that have tons of Bitcoin on the balance sheet. So by the handful, they're coming. And by the handful, they'll also go beyond just putting a Bitcoin on the balance sheet and start providing liquidity. And when they see the massive reward they get for being a first mover there, it's Mm going to be a bit.
0: wow yeah it's going to be an awesome time it's going to be an awesome time uh brian thank you so much for joining us at the digital currency summit
1: i did enjoy thank you very much bryce a lot of uh, cool questions too we're kind of cryptography nerds so it's good to talk about the projects uh more because uh we need to get the message out so thanks for having us
0: absolutely my pleasure all right awesome stuff uh from brian i hope you guys enjoyed that but switching gears a little bit, somebody who, who's much different, comes at the market from a you know, vastly different perspective than Brian, um, and who's trying to accomplish a lot of different things, uh, is our friend John Purefoy. Uh, and we spoke with John. Uh, he, he runs the Floating Point Group. Uh, and we're talking to him about how crypto enters the mainstream. And really, the changes that the industry has gone through over the last year, in order to get us to where we are today. So here's our interview with John Purifoy, CEO of Floating Point Group.
3: All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Digital Currency Summit. Um, We've got lots of mad geniuses in this space, but up next is a kind genius and one of the nicest people I've ever met. John Purifoy, Floating Point Group, a regular contributor here on the Digital Currency Summit. Welcome back, my friend.
4: Aaron, first off, thank you so much for having me back. And second off, that was an incredibly kind introduction. Uh, I've been called a great many things. I don't know if I get the kindest person in the world very often, but I am from the Midwest, uh, and we are known for our generosity. That is That's right.
3: And Um, you've been very generous with all your information, all your thoughts, um, which are some of the best and most profound in this space. So I just call it like I see it and we keep calling you back every time because the content you deliver is really one of a kind. So I wanna shut up and just turn the the, the forum over to you. What are you looking at in this space right now? What excites you towards the end of Q4 2021 going into 2022? So I, I really
4: appreciate the question. And I think crypto has changed a lot just in the last six to eight months. Right. Like we were kind of joking this this morning as a team, you know, Bloomberg, a lot of people on our team obviously kind of watch Bloomberg or Bloomberg TV during the day. The tickers at the bottom, you know, six months ago would occasionally have Bitcoin on good days or things like that. Now, routinely next to, you know, price of commodities or price of futures or price of stocks, it routinely tickers as well for Bitcoin, you know, Ethereum, Cardano, you know, Litecoin, different things like this. Um, And so I think the pretty shocking part about this is that cryptos very much entered the mainstream, right? I I think people pretty much understand that. And I think that you've seen a lot of that happen in the past six to eight months. And so I think to your question, what is particularly exciting about that and what's particularly profound is that you now have an amazing opportunity. Right, you have an opportunity for the crypto projects and crypto ecosystem to start delivering on actual underlying use cases and underlying methods, where we can really start to disrupt commercial and consumer workflows in many different ways. And I think you're going to see a lot of this in the next six to eight months. Right, I think you're going to see some of it kind of in fun ways, right, with some of the DeFi and NFT games and different things like that. And that you'll see some of it in more serious ways with Visa, Mastercard looking at for payment rails on the back end. And I think you'll see it more in like trading ways too. So I think if I were to really categorize what I think the next six to eight months will be, it's gonna be continue with that evolution of that transformation of you know, more mainstream, more institutions, but I really think you're gonna actually start to see a focus on in terms of people actually buying these things to use it or using it in different personal workflows or commercial or consumer in different ways. Um, those are at least some of the high levels of it. You know, I, think, I think there's a couple of different areas to go deeper on in terms of you know, how regulation is gonna develop, how some of the DeFi protocols will develop, um, some of the individual products. But I think at a high level, that's kind of how I see
3: it. that sounds amazing. I know, you know, for years now, we've been in this space watching the very building blocks get formed and then connected, and the tokens were just speculation. No one really had any intention of using them. And I said, well, you know, after this, we need a bunch more developers to come on and build applications that people can actually use. And we're starting to get to the beginning of that stage now, where countries and small businesses can actually plug this stuff into their QuickBooks or their paybook and actually denominate values in Bitcoin or transfer stable coins in and out of their bank accounts next to their fiat money. So it's amazing to see this transformation finally taking underway, like the laws have passed where banks can custody stable coins and Bitcoin, for that matter, now here in the U.S., uh, while they haven't rolled out those services yet. I would expect them to come in the next six to eight months so uh that is a tremendous thing
4: yeah but the world has really changed
3: really. a lot in the last six to eight months too what about that has particularly caught your eye and how can crypto i guess help us get back to the old normal and reject the new normal that they're trying to put on us yeah. So
4: maybe I'll, I'll I'll comment on a couple of things that you brought up too, because I think they're really interesting. So one of the fun things you mentioned is central bank digital currencies and kind of some of the interesting initiatives. It's actually something I really respect on you guys' show and podcasts, because I think you guys do a really great job of kind of explaining and kind of analyzing, okay, what's happening in different parts of the world and how's that kind of motivating where things are going. And and I think one of the most fascinating parts about the central bank digital currencies is particularly when you look at like where different parts of the world are. And Holland and I did a really amazing kind of webinar about this, right? Where China is probably by far the farthest, right? It's funny right now, people are kind of talking about the Chinese crackdown and kind of things in Asia really consolidating and kind of being done under a lot of regulation. But if you actually think towards the mechanisms of why that is, right? Or at least kind of what possible motivations are, the reality is the china central bank digital currency right the digital yuan has been being tested for a long time it started being developed in 2014-2015 it's now done over 5 billion dollars in transactional volumes and you're seeing them trying to partner with different vendors like mcdonald's to, more or less kind of service them across the entire china mainland right and so the reason i comment on this is I think it's very real, right? I think that these kind of things, like digital currencies or central bank digital currencies, right? They're very real. and They're non-trivial. One interesting fact on that, right, is a lot of people suggest that the 2022 Olympics in China will actually largely be China's kind of first stab at forcing people to use the digital yuan. Um, And so the reason I say this in particular as it kind of relates to this discussion is, one, I think one of the things you're really going to see happen in the next, you know, three to six months is countries getting serious about this. In the US, you saw this with the House resolution. You saw this with the working group. The Blockchain Caucus is gathering more attention and more detail. And the infrastructure bill was actually a really interesting first step at that, right? You saw a lot of people in the infrastructure bill talking about crypto and actually understanding, okay, what's going on? Um, And I think the important part about that is education, right? I think people that are in government and in different parts and different industries need to understand what's going on. Um, It's part of the reason why I think you guys' podcast is really cool, right? Because I think you need to to educate people at all levels of, of understandings. So, so so I think when you think about the building blocks, right, you kind of think about it, okay, education needs to happen. That education needs to drive regulation. That regulation needs to drive larger organizational involvement, whether it be from financial institutions or nations and sovereigns. Um, And to the second part of your question, which is, okay, how can crypto use it to kind of reject, you know, this old, you know, get us back to like kind of a a stable point, right? It was funny, me and you were kind of talking about how with COVID and everything, everything is so much in flux, right? You kind of talk about like, you know, people having to be watched and monitored for different vaccines or different kind of where they are, right? We're actually building out a presence in Singapore right now, and their regulations are incredibly, incredibly more constricted than the U.S. And anyway, the reason I say that is to your point on building blocks, I think you're right. I think all this starts with an education, right? It's a matter of are people, in, like, are people aware and do they understand the, both the benefits and the cons of some of these items and these technologies? Um, and I think that's still kind of yet to prove. I think it's still kind of yet to see. But I think the part that I'm excited about is kind of seeing the role that'll play in the next six to eight months
3: and really seeing where that will go. There are many parts in the world that have been struggling for hundreds of years. For one reason or another or they're just emerging you know maybe they just got electricity they're still struggling with clean water and the idea of a brand new fair stakeholder capitalism kind of world sounds great to them because regular capitalism really really hurt them but here in the u.s we've been number one we don't like change there's a lot of people here in texas that still only accept cash so how does you know, crypto and all this coming technological change, you know, really going to affect the US. So the US is really like. I talk to people from other countries and they say, well, we all look to the US to make decisions for us because they're number one, they have the highest level of education, they're still the world leader despite all the problems that we have here. And that made me think, like, really? You're looking to us? Oh my God. <laughs> you don't know how screwed up you are. But. I guess that's the fact of the matter. So, uh, you mentioned education, you know, in politics and stuff. And thankfully, there are a lot of politicians now, uh, like Thomas Massey yep. and Ted Cruz, that are really trying to, you know, fight the good fight and you know share education with their constituents. What can you know the average person do to at least get educated, even if they don't approve of any of this stuff, even Bitcoin? What's the best way to try and at least understand what's going on, whether they like it or not?
4: I think it's a brilliant question. So I'm from Missouri, and in Missouri, you know, we're like the show me state and whatnot. Um, And so I would almost argue that using it is probably the best method of education, right? I think when someone for the first time says buys Bitcoin or Ethereum and sends it between addresses, and you really start to understand and appreciate, wow, okay, this address really doesn't have my name on it, right? This is literally in a nether where it's not anywhere. And I think it's also really important to break off just centralized exchanges, right? Like I think it's really important to buy it, say on Coinbase or you know buy it on Binance US or buy it wherever. And then I think send it actually to kind of your own wallet, right, where you can control the currencies yourself and then do that. And I think the important part about that is I think it teaches you a lot about how those money flows are so different than traditional flows, right? Crypto is insane because crypto is a bare asset, right? And it's really important to note this idea that it's literally like you're sending gold between different places. You're, you're sending an asset where that asset is physically in. It. It's not representing you know, a note or an IOU to a bank that has a bunch of money and if everyone comes and gets it, there's a problem. That money is physically yours. And there's a lot of responsibilities that come with that because if you lose those things, you cannot get them back. But at the same time, that's a pretty empowering idea because now you no longer have ideas of other people being able to block you or blacklist you or kind of control you. Um, And I think it's really powerful, right? One, One thing that's actually kind of funny, and this is really important to note kind of about different cryptos, is different cryptos have more or less levels of centralization in them. Right. One of the reasons why I think Bitcoin is so strong and it will continue to do really well, despite the fact that both the development of it is slowed down dramatically um, and the fact that it's not that practically useful. But, but, but the key part about it is that it's very decentralized. Once you pretty much have Bitcoin, you, know, you can't really like have that taken in any way other than someone getting your keys. But if you compare that say to something like a USDT or USDC, where it's more backed by say central bodies and there's regulators in it, right, they can actually do things like blacklist your coins, right? It's actually funny. There, there's actually a number of USDT and USDC addresses that have been entirely blacklisted. You saw this with the Polygon hack earlier this year, where effectively the hacker actually stole the money and was gonna give it back. But actually the entity that owned USDT locked the address. And so they couldn't actually send the part of the money back. So the reason I point on this is you kind of commented about education. First off, I would use it. I would go buy cryptos on different exchanges. I would send it to your own wallets. I would download your own MetaMask. And then I would start using it in decentralized apps. I'd play some NFT games. I'd swap it a little bit on different places. I'd try some lending protocols. Right, And the reason why you do this is you do this to understand kind of the different components out there and what they're used for. Because then I think once you understand how they're used, it's a lot better to understand the mechanics behind it. Um, That's at least how I think about kind of average person execution. One last thing, by the way, you mentioned Thomas Massey. Um, huge respect for him. He actually did a really killer podcast on Coindesk that genuinely educated me like a ton about the infrastructure and, you know, different different ways that they were kind of thinking about it. Uh, and so I think those are like really interesting points. Um, yes. And then you, lastly, your point on the dollar hegemony. Yes. Petrodollar is, I think, a very key topic and it's very important to talk about in the context of crypto. Um, so we could probably do an entire segment just on that. Yes.
3: Yeah. We'll definitely have to have you uh, back on the podcast, do a much longer episode, we'll <laughs> got a few more minutes unfortunately but before we let you go i want to know some things about floating point group tell us what you're working on you mentioned the expansion into singapore tell us what you're building and who can leverage what you're yeah, doing i really I really appreciate your
4: questions. So we're Floating Point Group. We provide prime brokerage services to crypto institutions. So we do things like order execution for large quantities. We do things like offering custody and settlement systems for different hedge funds, asset managers, venture capitalists, um, and we also offer some different DeFi access, whether that be, say, levered stack, levered you know levered compound systems, or being able to do stacking or staking or different items like that. Um, that's actually kind of just you know kind of a quick wrap about we do in terms of the groups we work with. And, you know, if people are interested in learning more, twofold, one is we'd love to talk to you about different things that people are working on in crypto. Uh, The reality is that when we talk about institutions in crypto, they're not really what you would imagine for a traditional institution. All too often, it's kind of one person that's been trading a bit and the price is 100x and they've done very well. Um, And so I would say that if you're working on stuff in the crypto space and you want to maybe talk and kind of see different ways that maybe we can help each other, we'd love to kind of speak. And then the second way that I would always say it is crypto is a very growing ecosystem right now. And it's just always kind of good to know more people and kind of know what's going on. So if people know good projects or kind of are seeing good projects, would always love to kind of connect with different fronts on that.
0: (laughs) Wow. All right. Uh, John, awesome dude. Talk super quick, but smart and sharp as a tack. And that's the two interviews right there. Okay. Um, and those two interviews, we just wanted to give you a small taste of what you can expect coming up March 8th through March 10th. Again, to sign up for the digital currency summit, visit digital and snag your ticket today.